Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. Our Torah portion carries agricultural commandments concerning fruits of the land of Israel. Here is one of these commandments. I'm going to quote to you three verses. When you come to the land and you plant any food tree, you shall surely block its fruit from use. It shall be blocked from you from use for three years, not to be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruits shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. Do this in order to increase, increase its produce for you. I am the Lord your God. Let us first understand the simple few biblical commandments of these verses. A. We are prohibited to eat from the first three years of produce of a newly planted tree that was planted in Israel. This is called Orla. That's the name of this mitzvah. The next commandment, mitzvah, the produce of the fourth year of this planted tree is called Holy, a praise to the Lord. And therefore has the same laws as of the tithe produce, which may only be eaten in the city of Jerusalem. However, the fruits may be exchanged for money, and the money must then be brought to Jerusalem. From it may be bought only edible food, and the edible food must be eaten in Jerusalem. This commandment is called the commandment of Neterevai, the fourth year of produce that has to be eaten in Jerusalem. The produce of the fifth year of this newly planted tree may be eaten wherever the rightful owner wishes to eat this fruit, his fruit. Now let us go back to the verse and apply some Talmudic extra extrapolation form of thinking. And let us focus on a seemingly promising phrase. And in the fifth year you may eat its fruit, do this in order to increase its produce for you. The Torah is telling us that for not eating from the fruit of the tree for its first three years, and for eating only in Jerusalem the fruits or their exchange of the fourth year of this tree, there is a reward. The reward is that there will be an unnatural, miraculous increase in its produce on the fifth year. However, actually, if we really want to embrace the Talmudic extrapolation form of thinking, we need to be more precise with the wording of the verse. For what it is actually saying is that the increase of produce is a reward for eating the, foos, the fruits of the fifth year. Go ahead, read the verse again. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit, do this in order to increase this produce for you. Thus, in this lecture we will explore the reason as to why God is rewarding us for eating the produce of the fifth year wherever our heart desires, which doesn't even sound like a commandment, as much as it sounds like a release from the previous two commandments of Orla and Netaravai. Rather, logic would suggest that God will reward those who showed restraint and kept the limitations that God has placed on the tree that they planted 
concerning the fruits of the first three years and then on the fruits of the fourth year. So why is God rewarding us for eating wherever we want the fruits of the fifth year? As is most often what seems to be shallow logic on the external legal and methodological layer of the law takes on a beautiful deep and wholesome understanding on its internal mystical layer. And so it is with our commandments of the fruits of trees planted in Israel. In Kabbalah and in Hasidus, the number four defines the entire evolution process from the primordial infinite light to the finite existence of creation as we know creation, the universe, to be. This is why God's most powerful name is made up of four letters. This is why all the worlds in total are divided into four worlds, from top to bottom, Atzilut, which literally means close to God or brought forth from God, Bria, which means creation, Yetzira, which means formation, and Asiya, which means action. This is also why the ten emanations, which absorb the infinite light in the top emanation of wisdom and then gives forth a finite digestible light from the for the worlds from its tenth emanation of kingship, is also divided into four categories. These ten emanations are divided into the four categories from top to bottom. One, wisdom. Two, understanding. Three, the small faces, which are the six male emotions. And four, kingship. So we see that everything is divided into four when we talk about the process of the evolution from the infinite light to the finite creation. What is most important for us to understand from this is how these four categories of the name of God, the worlds, and the ten emanations reflect themselves in our soul, our psyche, the world around us, and in our service to God. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, these four categories are the reasons behind many of the commandments. Thus, firstly, we see these we, under, we see that understanding these four categories more practically will help us understand the laws and the commandments of the Torah that govern our lives as the Jewish people chosen to live the life of Torah and mitzvahs because as I said, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, these four categories are the reasons behind many of the commandments. So let us understand these four categories better so that we can perform the commandments, observe the prohibitions with more joy. The four categories divide into two categories. The first world of Atsila is Atsilut is one category, and the three worlds of Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya, known in Kabbalah with the acronym Bia, Bria, Yetzira, Asiya, are a second category. The verse in Genesis describes of how a river came forth from Eden to irrigate the garden, and then, I quote, and from there it separated. Mystically speaking, separation is the source of all impurity. Separation gives birth to a self-identity void of God, which gives birth to egocentrism, narcissism, and self-centeredness, which progresses into total impurity and evil. Thus, 
even though at the highest level, at the conception of separation, there is still purity and submission to God, but it, all car it already carries within it the seed of all future evil. Eden represents the holy world of Atzilut, and the place of, and from there it separated, is the category of the three worlds of Biyah. Thus, the three worlds, at the completion of the progressiveness of their evolution, become what are mystically called the three husks of impurity. Shalosh Klipot Hatmeyot. We refer to them as husks klipot, for they are but non-transparent husks that fully cover, conceal, and deny the existence of the spark of God within them, which is the source of their existence and sustenance. So therefore they're called husks of impurity because they cover the godly spark and take on a total identity of egocentrism. Now we understand the law of the first three years and then the law of the fourth year of the, tree, of the tree's fruits. The first three years are the embodiment of Biyah, the three husks of impurity, and therefore cannot be eaten at all. The fourth year is the embodiment of Atzilut, and the fruits are therefore called holy, a praise to the Lord, and therefore may be eaten only in the holy city of Jerusalem. The question now is, what are the fruits of the fifth year mystically about? The four letters of God's name are Yud, He, Vav, and He. Those are the four Hebrew letters to God's most powerful and effable tetragrammaton name. However, Kabbalah and Hasidus make the greatest emphasis not on these four letters of the name, rather they place the greatest emphasis on what they call the Thorn of Yud. It's the Thorn of the letter Yud. Before we get into the mystical meaning of this, let us first explain what this practically is. Unlike the English alphabet, which is set upon a bottom line, upon which the letters are then written on top of that line, the Hebrew letters of the alphabet are set upon a top line, upon which the letters are then written beneath that line. In the English alphabet, there are exceptions that extend beneath the line, as for example, the small p and the small y. And in the Hebrew alphabet, there is an exception that reaches up above the line, which is a letter called Lamed. However, the general rule is that in the English alphabet, all letters are equally set above a bottom line, while in the Hebrew alphabet, the letters are equally set beneath a top line. The alphabet letters, as they are written in the Holy Torah scroll, the Tefillin and the Mezuzot, have special traditions that were handed down from generation to generation. One of these traditions is that certain letters carry crowns on top of them, which is why when you look at the Torah scroll, while you see that the letters, besides the Lamed, all start equally on top, nevertheless, specific letters have crowns on top of them, sometimes made of three lines, sometimes of two lines, and sometimes of one line. 
Some of these crowns have legal status and are mandatory for the letter to be considered kosher and fit, while others are of tradition and in post facto is considered kosher and does not need to be replaced if the letter does not have the crown. Now let us go to the letter Yud. The letter Yud is the smallest letter which is made up primarily of one dot. Now, nevertheless, even though it seems to be such a simple letter, like how can you write it wrong? It's just one almost square dot. There are a huge amount of laws defining what makes a written letter Yud fit and kosher and what makes it unfit and non-kosher. One of these laws speak of the thorn of the Yud, which are a line a line going up from the top left corner of the letter. So picture the Yud, or you can go online and go ahead and do a search on an image of the letter Yud. So you have like almost a dot, and on the left top corner, there is a thorn, a line going up. This is not a crown that came down from the tradition of the scribes, but rather it is a clear law that defines this thorn as an obligatory part of the letter Yud. In order for the letter to be considered fit and kosher, it has to have the kotso shel Yud, the thorn of the Yud. This is the simple, practical, legal meaning behind the thorn of the Yud. Mystically speaking, this thorn of Yud represents the deepest transcendence beyond the infinite light being related, subjected, or processed for the sake of creating our finite universe. Let us understand this. Before I introduce you, that to, you, you to that the four letters of God also represent the ten emanations, as the ten emanations are divided into four categories. I began by saying that the ten emanations absorbs the infinite light in the top emanation of wisdom and then gives forth a finite digestible light for the worlds from its tenth emanation of kingship. What this means is that the infinite light that is absorbed within wisdom is an infinite light that can relate to the finite world, or else it could never have been subjected to the evolution process, which would then in turn transform from it a finite digestible light. However, above the first emanation of wisdom, there is an infinite light that completely transcends even any potential relationship to the finite limitations of the universe, and therefore could never be processed, contracted, concealed, or transformed into becoming a source of finite sustenance to a finite universe. The letter Yud is the emanation of wisdom, and above that is the thorn of the Yud, which is the supernal crown. For the sake of wholesome clarity, I want to explain this concept of the supernal crown a bit clearer. The supernal crown has two dimensions its external dimension and its internal dimension. The external dimension of the supernal crown is called long faces, erech ampin, long faces. 
and it is the infinite light that relates to creation and it is this infinite light that gets absorbed into the emanation of wisdom. The internal dimension of the supernal crown is called the Ancient One, Atika Kadisha. And it is the infinite light that transcends beyond and above any relationship with the infinite limitations of a fi of with the finite limitations of a finite universe. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for ancient is Atika, and the others translate the word to actually come from the root word netek, which means disconnected, explaining that this infinite light is completely disconnected from the finite worlds. So now, let us return to the fruits of a new tree planted in Israel. The fruits of the first three years we explained are the three worlds of separation, biyah, which are the three latter letters of God's name, which through myriads of contractions, concealments, and transformations become the three husks of impurity. Therefore, these fruits may not be eaten at all. The fruits of the fourth year are the holy world of unity called Atzilut, which is the first letter of God's name, the Yud, which is the emanation of wisdom, which houses within it the infinite light. Therefore, these fruits are called holy, a praise to the Lord, and may be eaten only in the holy city of Jerusalem. The fruits of the fifth year are the thorn of the Yud, and more specifically, the total transcendence of the infinite light of the ancient disconnected one. This now leads us to the greatest paradox of all. The fruits of Atzilut are called holy, a praise to the Lord, and can be eaten only in the holy city of Jerusalem, while the fruits of the even greater ancient disconnected one are not called holy and may be eaten anywhere? What a paradox! The question leads us to realize that we are looking at God through our paradigm rather than looking at ourselves through God's paradigm. The difference between the two is whether we, accept we are accepting a God that we created or whether we are willing to see ourselves as a divine being who God created having a human experience. Yes, ultimately seeing any God that is the product of our paradigm is to see a God who isn't truly a God and a God who isn't truly worth serving. As a matter of fact, serving such a God of our paradigm is only self-serving, either in our self-seeking of blessings and of protection from punishment, or an even deeper sense of spiritual self-seeking. So we need to step out of our paradigm of God and rather see God's paradigm of us. The paradox that is perturbing us is a paradox only because of our looking at God, spirituality, and purpose through our paradigm. However, from God's paradigm, there's no paradox at all. Quite the contrary. Everything is perfectly as it should be. It is interesting how many Jewish people, especially of European Ashkenazi, 
descent, Jews as myself, carry the belief that unlike churches, a shul should not be grandiose and more on the impoverished side. After all, a shul must be a spiritual place. A rabbi should definitely not be wearing finer clothes, live in a luxurious home, and his wife should most definitely not be wearing Tiffany jewelry. How could any human be spiritual otherwise? Even a pension fund is not something that a Hasidic rabbi should have, for after all, he is a man who must live on faith. Yes, holy must be protected and sustained only through abstinence and self-abnegation. So saith the wisdom of our human paradigm, which so deeply sees and fears the harsh reality of corruption. However, what saith God? I quote to you from the sages in the Medrash. Why was it gold? Why was it created? For the building of the tabernacle and the holy temple. Only once gold was created for the holy temple did God make it also available for the wealth of people. Another statement of God's paradigm. Maimonides rules in his Mishnah Torah, Book of Laws, that the shul, a synagogue, must be the highest, tallest building in the city and that the shul must be nicer than the houses. Another statement from God's paradigm of spirituality and holiness. The law is that the high priest must be wealthier than all the other priests and if it isn't so, all the other priests must chip in to make the high priest richer than them. Another statement in Jewish law of God's paradigm. A judge serving in the Jewish court must have personal wealth. An interesting directive from the Rebbe of blessed memory to all the Chabad organizations in Israel when the Rebbe reviewed their annual budget was that they should not give away mezuzot for free. Yes, spiritual commandments need to have a monetary price. What is going on here? Truly, how can we have created such a backwards perception of reality? What made seeing a spiritual man live in poverty a noble and holy sight? A sight that we feel that we dare not interfere with or alter, lest we desecrate the holiness. Why aren't we ashamed at seeing impoverished spiritual people and destitute spiritual shoes amongst our people. And I mean a shame deep enough to compel the person to give monetary gifts to change the situation of having an impoverished rabbi or a destitute shul. The answer is that we on our own, through our paradigm, can only relate to the infinite light of the fourth years of fruit, that which is declared holy and a praise to the Lord only because it is limited with self-abnegation in having us leave the comfort of our homes and of our city and travel to the ancient city of Jerusalem with all the state of holy abnegation of this holy city, Jerusalem. However, God's paradigm lay in the ancient disconnected one, hidden in the thorn of the Yud, embodied in the fruits of the fifth year that can be eaten anywhere 
and are not considered by the abstinence and abnegation of being holy. This is why the reward of physical increase is precisely for eating from the fruits of the fifth year wherever your heart desires, for they are the true fulfillment of the ultimate spirituality, which is to make for God a physical home on earth and to invite God into, and I quote, all our ways and into, I quote, all our actions. This is the depth of the fruit of the fifth year, which is the embodiment of the deepest essence infinite light, which is through the fulfillment of the verses and in all your ways know him and in all your actions be for the sake of heaven. The emphasis here is on the word your, which is not the way of poverty or abnegation. The thought of poverty we save for those that are God's holy and spiritual people and not for our ways of action. Thus the ultimate spirituality is not in our impoverished perception of holy and spiritual but in our wealthy perception of how our ways and actions should be wealthy and luxurious. However, it is true that the order of evolving from our paradigm of spirituality and holiness into God's paradigm of spirituality and holiness is to first go through the first three years of abstinence, then the fourth year of abnegation, and only then to embrace the fifth year of physical abundance and increase. In closing, and as you all know that in my closing statement, I make all the mystical concepts we discussed in the lecture real and practical for us in prescribing a direct form of action. So too it is now. My friends, our institution, the Jewish Mind and the Jewish Center, have been serving world Jewry in holiness and spirituality for over 20 years. We have evolved through the three years of abstinence and through the fourth year of abnegation. Presently, our institution, and I mean ours and as in yours and mine, needs to enter into the fifth year of increase. The Jewish mind and the Jewish center need for you and me to let go of our paradigm of impoverished holiness and spirituality and in its place to embrace God's paradigm of physical increase and abundance spirituality and holiness. Our institute now needs to find a larger, more stable and a more luxurious home. And for that to happen, the Institute needs you to give a meaningful gift. To make this gift a link called God's Paradigm of Holiness and Spirituality has been provided in the description box of the SoundCloud, SoundCloud page and in the email of the Jewish Mind. Be spiritual and make the meaningful gift and for it you will be blessed with an increase of blessings in your health, wealth, and success. As a matter of fact, 
create a continuous increase of blessings for you by setting your meaningful and sustainable gift as a recurring monthly gift and for it you will receive a continuous recurring gift of increase from God. Friends, modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers the timeless divine solutions. The Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.